It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Anne-Marie Batson, the journalist and broadcaster, and Glenn Moore of World Soccer. At least Antonio Conte knows what he has let himself in for. A team that is poor out of possession, with a three-man defence that appears alarmingly vulnerable. A midfield that has yet to be balanced. There's real potential up front, but the talisman, Harry Kane, is still some way off his best. Now, optimism always sweeps in with a new manager, but Glenn, what are the realistic limits of Tottenham's ambition under Conte this season? Well, I think there is an opportunity this season, mainly because of Manchester United's failings. I mean, I watched the game last night, like a lot of people would have done, and it was um, quite an introduction for Antonio Conte is to Spurs, I mean, 3-0, you're thinking, well, this is quite a transformation. And then, of course, all the holes start appearing. He's learned he's got a very good goalkeeper, which he probably knew anyway. Certainly there's some potential there. And they did look much more adventurous, much more... Uh, yeah, I mean, if they win every game 3-2, most fans are going to be fairly happy, even if Conte won't be. But um, I can't see that happening. But there is an opportunity this year because obviously May night's failings mean... I think we're looking at a, a big three at the moment who've got away, but there are four places available. And there's going to be quite a lot of teams chasing that last fourth place. I mean, at the moment, you would say, look, you know, West, West Ham are in, in pole position. But Arsenal will be looking at it. Spurs will obviously be looking at it. I mean, it's interesting Brendan Rodgers saying that Conte's arrival means those other clubs like Leicester are going to slightly up their game because suddenly Spurs will be reinvigorated. So, yeah, fourth place looks a credible possibility if if he can organise the defence to stop conceding and and keep the attack scoring, of course, which is always a great conundrum of football. Yeah. What about the nature of the coaches coming in, Anne-Marie? To quote him, you know, a coach without passion, this is a coach with no value. I suspect the uh, workload on Spurs players on a training ground is going to um, increase alarmingly, isn't it? I'd say so. And the fact that he's bringing in three fitness coaches as well, which was announced as part of his backroom staff, I think is very telling. Ryan Mason, as we now know, has been promoted to as one of the first team coaches as well, which I think is also very telling. I think he doesn't suffer fools, does he, Antonio Conti? And uh, can I just say, it's lovely to see him back on the touchline looking very sharp, suited. And he was, yeah, really passionate on, on the sidelines. I think there were a couple of things that made his eyebrows go up quite high. Yeah, he's not going to suffer fools. He's not going to tolerate slackness. He's not going to tolerate lack of effort either. And over the last few weeks, Spurs have been guilty of that. And I think he would have got a sharp crash course in that yesterday as well. So it's going to be, he's got a bit of time though, I think with the international break, because obviously he's had no pre-season, it's a chance for him to assess and look at where he needs to tighten up. But, you know, Christmas is coming. And I think those key games, I believe, in December against Liverpool and West Ham will give us a barometer where Spurs are going to end up, I think, for the season. This, this fitness thing, though, it's, it's the oldest trick in the book for a new manager to come in and say, oh, the players aren't fit, I'll get them fit, make them all work harder. The amount of times a new manager comes in and says that, and you do have to be careful. I mean, it's all very well, double training sessions, all that sort of thing that chairman like and fans like. It's a long season, and the smarter managers 
prepare for a long season and they have to be remember you don't want lots of soft tissue injuries occurring at the sharp end come April, May because actually you've overworked the player. So, yeah, although it's a very easy win-win and things to say, I suspect they'd be a bit more sensible than just making them work their nuts off on the field for a while and look at who can do what work and, and pace it. Yeah, but I'm, you know, I think you've only got to look at him to see that he's you know, naturally incredibly intense. I suppose that one of the questions, Amory, is can this group of players actually be trusted? Because you know, let's be honest here, they effectively disowned and undermined the previous manager because basically their performance were well indifferent, I suppose, at best. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think the front three of Mora. Kane and Son. I don't think, I mean, obviously they need a little bit of work, but that wouldn't be the focus for me. It's definitely that midfield and that back line, whether it's going to be a back four or a back three. To say that Tottenham Hotspur down tools, I wouldn't go that far under Nino Espirito Santo. Something was clearly up because you could just see in their body language, they just weren't feeling it. But I wouldn't say they down tools. I don't think that's that. those players are that type because of the, the Spurs fan base. But I do think that that back line is the issue, as well as obviously the midfield, but it's that back line of sorting that out, I think. And I think, you know, there are players that were sitting on the bench yesterday who are going to need to really show what they can do for, for Conti. One example I would use is that is the three of Tanganga, Rondon and Sanchez. How is he going to manage that situation? Because I, I quite like Tanganga as a player. Actually, I think he's got a lot of potential. How can he integrate him more into the team? He needs to sort out Eric Dyer as well. There's a lot of unhappiness about his performances over the last few weeks as well. And as you pointed out at the top, Mike, they're not working hard enough out of possession. And then also, you know, Deli Ali, the biggest question of all, what's going on with him? Can Conte revitalise him because you know we don't see him now we don't hear from him now and you don't know what's going on with a player of his quality and he's still you know he hasn't even hit his prime yet to be fair so I think there's a few players that could do with a rocket there's a few players that could do with a bit of just fine polishing and there's a couple of players that I think are there already like the likes of Sonny and Lucas Mora who don't necessarily need tweaking but could do better not do better but in terms of just getting more service from the midfield. When we see a Conti team, it's usually three-five-two or three-four-three, isn't it, Glenn? Is that suited to Tottenham's current squad? And if so, which players do you think have most to gain from Conti's arrival, and who's got most to lose? Well, it's interesting. I think I think it is suited to an extent because they've got they haven't really got what you call an outstanding centre half in the in the club. I mean, obviously they've moved on the, the two Belgians who were very good for many years. The, so you look at a situation whereby having the extra centre half will give them a bit of protection. They've got one or two players who'd be well placed to be wing backs, like uh, Regulian, uh, Doherty, and he likes wing backs. So you are looking at you know, everyone's asking who's going to be Spurs' Victor Moses, who obviously no one would anticipate would be such a shining light for Chelsea under Conte. In terms of who's going to lose, well, I guess it's. The players who've got something to lose are the ones who, already fi- who are already fixtures in the first team because they could lose their place. Everyone who's on the fringe or out of it has only got something to gain or they eventually leave the club. And there aren't that many players who say who are fixed in the first team who, who might get dropped. And we mentioned Eric Dyer. I mean, he's one of those players, I guess, has to. everyone has to prove themselves to a the new manager all the time. But some players will come with built-in advantages like Son and Lloris and Kane that they're guaranteed top-notch players and they've obviously got it. In terms of the other question I asked about, can they, can they be trusted? I mean, they're all going to work a bit harder with the new manager, obviously, and there's a lot of enthusiasm there for the new manager because of what he brings in terms of his prestige and proven ability. But, I mean, can any group of players be fully trusted? I mean, it's interesting, uh, Patrice Everett saying that, you know, the, the main night squad basically effectively stopped working for Moyes. And he was saying the players, you know, come on, it's also, also about us, it's not about the manager. And they were like, mm, well, you know. I mean, we've all had bosses that we don't like very much. Not many of us are in the enviable position of knowing that if we just hang around for a while, you know, it's, it's a boss who will be fired and not us because it's more expensive to get rid of 15 players than it is to get rid of one manager and given the turnover managers you know, these days. So I think, can, can, can you trust any group really? It's up to the manager to keep them on side, you know, to keep the squad together. And that's part of the art of management these days. Well, you can speak for yourself, mate. Every every person that I've worked for has been a wonderful human being, okay? <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you, when you look at, you know, the most 
striking thing that's happened so far, I suppose, is that we've been led to believe that Harry Kane is now happy. What does that sudden change of heart say about him, do you think? And his state of mind more than anything else? Oh, that's a really good question, you know, Mike. I don't know. I don't know. I just... Because I think, didn't Harry Kane have a really good relationship with Jose Mourinho? I think that, because he came out and said that he had a good working relationship with him. But he just, I don't know. It's a, I don't think Nuno Espirito Santo got this, the best out of, of Harry Kane. He was dropping far too deep. And I think that was causing some frustration. Maybe that was an instruction from from Nuno Espirito Santo, but it wasn't working. Harry Kane, he just wasn't working under him. And I think that's partly one of the reasons why he's, he's gone I, again, I just don't like to think of him in that way, that suddenly he's going to bounce up because it's Antonio Conte. Yes, he will bounce up in the sense of it's a new manager, it's the new manager bounce you want to impress, absolutely. But I'd like to think, and maybe it's naive of me, wouldn't be the first time, but I'd like to think of a player of Harry Kane's quality that he is a professional 100% and he will deliver 100%. Now, whether his, where his fitness levels are at, we don't know. He tends to, he's a bit of a slow starter, as we know in the Premier League, but we are, you know, we're into November now. So you'd like to think he's going to start stepping up more and more as the season progresses. But I, I just can't get my head around the fact that he'd be somebody who just suddenly would take a seat back because I think he loves Tottenham too much. He loves being a footballer. I just can't see him being that person who would just kind of just step away and just let things roll I'd like to think that he is that professional and he would deliver time and time again as he did well kind of yesterday drawing fouls yesterday um, against Vitesse which didn't go down too well with the opposition of course um, yeah I just maybe like I said maybe it's naive of me but I, I can't think of him in that way that suddenly he's going to suddenly bounce up because it's it's a new manager because it wasn't working under the previous regime I think he will. I mean, he wanted to leave in the summer. I mean, for all his love for the club. He's 28. He needs to win things. He knows it's time to start winning things. He's looked at Nuno come in and thought, I don't think we're going to win anything with this bloke. Conte's come in and suddenly he's thinking, well, hang on. Yeah, this is a top-notch manager. If the club appeared to give him the budget, you know, A, pay him and all his staff, plus he won't have come without some promises. So suddenly you're thinking, maybe we, we will, maybe Tottenham have got a chance of winning something. Maybe it will work here after all. Maybe I don't have to leave. Yeah, I think there is a sense around the club that they're, they're serious again. Whereas the appointment of Nuno was like a marking time sort of appointment. You know, where's it going? There's this drift that's happened. And now, you know, so I can see, I can see why he would think, hey, we're back. Spurs are at Everton on Sunday. Now, Conte has called for patience, Anne-Marie. I think we're going to find that patience is in short supply at Goodison. Are we at the sort of incipient stage of a, a Rafa revolt going on up there? You know, I'm going to give Rafa Benitez a pass on this one, and I, I, I'm not sure Evertonians are going to agree with me. I think his side have been beset by injury. I think the loss of Dominic Calvin-Lewin is huge for them. They're missing Decore as well. Yeri Mina, who I like a lot. I don't think Ben Davis is back to that level that he was because he was off for a period of time with COVID, had long COVID, so he's not quite back up yet. They've just had injury after injury after injury. And I think without Dominic Calvin-Lewin, which is not exactly firing from all the blocks either, I think Rafa Benitez will get a little bit of a pass, especially, and I think that he will do from some of the fans anyway. I don't think we're at that revolt simmering level yet that Everton can get to I think where it could get tricky is when heading into Christmas and that's when things start to get a little bit tight but I think between now and then as people start to come back hopefully Dominic Calvin-Loon will come back at some point I do think he will get a little bit of pass a good grace at least for the next few weeks Mike yeah, I suppose the Everton squad, when you look at it, it's, it's quite typical of, a, of, a, of a, a recurring problem where, you know, it's patchwork. That squad probably reflects poor recruitment under, you know, successive previous regimes, doesn't it, Glenn? And I suppose you add that to, to you know, Everton's reputation of a club that's, yeah, a bit like Spurs, you know, struggling under the weight of its tradition and pretension. Yes, I mean, I'd agree with Emery. I'm trying to give Rafa a bit of a pass in the, in the short term, at least, because he has inherited a squad that's been put together by several managers, at least two directors of football, neither of which have covered themselves in much glory. 
and, and it's very, very thin. And as we know, because of FFP, they haven't been spend, he hasn't been able to spend much money. He's only bought in um, Demo Gray and uh, Andrew Townsend, who've been good signings, but yeah, we're very much on the cheap for a club that spent so much money in the last five years. They've got injuries. They've got another player out for various reasons. And they are a bit short in terms of creativity and finishing, and that is a massive problem. I mean, the date coming up for Rafa is the derby on the 1st of December. Given his his history in the city, it could really do with getting a result in that match. Whereas if everything gets taken apart by Liverpool and Goodison, then the tide will definitely turn. So that's the one coming up in only a few weeks to keep an eye on for him. But in the, in the meantime, you know, he came in... Oh, God, it's Rafa, you know, the bloke from the, across the park. And then he started really well and everyone's converted. And now they've hit a bit of a slump, you know, coinciding with injuries. So we're at a tricky point. He can certainly do with a turnaround. I mean, uh, and, you know, tough fixture in a way, a, a rejuvenated Spurs. Then they go to Man City, always going to be quite tricky, despite Palace winning there last week. And then they go to Brentford, which is not an easy fixture at the moment either. And then Liverpool. Yeah, put like that, it's difficult, isn't it? I suppose, it, right, this is going to be a, a cheeky question, Anne-Marie, and, and probably an unfair one, so I'll apologise in advance. Okay. Would Rafa have been a better fit for Newcastle than Eddie Howe? Oh. <laughs> Told you it was unfair, didn't I? I, I think it was a straightforward oh, yes, actually, but carry on. Yeah, yeah I, I do, I do. I... <sighs> but he's at Everton, so it is what it is, right? I... <sighs> I just think that Rafa was loved at the tune, absolutely loved. And I think that relationship that him and Mike Ashley had was fractious 99% of the time. But even with, you know, Mike Ashley gone and new owners in, he's at Everton now, he's committed to Everton. I couldn't see him going back to Newcastle, maybe later down the line, who knows? You can never say never, can you? But... I, I do agree. I think Rafa would have been a, a better fit for Eddie Howe. And I'm trying, I'm, you know, I want to be positive about the potential of Eddie Howe if he has signed on the dotted line, because I think it's still in principle as it stands. You're just waiting for the announcement now. But I, I don't know. There are so many things. It's such a huge risk with Eddie Howe. And the reason why is because the defensive record, it's that back line that Newcastle need to sort out. And that's the thing that he struggled with with Bournemouth. So they're either thinking, yes, he's been in a relegation battle, he understands what it takes, but then on the flip side is that Bournemouth didn't survive the relegation battle. Yes, he brought them up from the lower leagues into the Premier League, kept them in for years and years and years, but they still got relegated. And I'm desperately, I really want to be positive. I really want to be positive about Eddie, how I do. I'm just, I'm struggling with it. Yeah, well, you know, as we speak just after nine o'clock on Friday morning, it's assumed, let's put it like that, that Eddie Howe will be on the line when Newcastle play at Brighton in the BT Sport match on Saturday evening. Look, Glenn, you know, you know how clubs work. At Newcastle, there's no internal structure. We probably need a new chief executive. They haven't got a director of football. Now, Eddie Howe's got an excellent body of work with a with a smaller club, but he is of a completely different style and pedigree to Unai Emery, who turned Newcastle down. Doesn't that tell you that the club are just lurching from one place to another? Well, we, we're, I'm sure we've mentioned this before, but you have to wonder about clubs' recruitment policies when you end up with a shortlist with two very different people on it. Yeah, it's not as if they've identified the type of manager they want and they've gone out to get one of those types of managers. It's, it's sort of like looking around at names, really, and then, oh, well, maybe him, maybe him. And it's not like they... Re- it is a very difficult job in that your first task is to stay up, clearly. So it's fix the defence, stop conceding goals. You know, if you can keep Callum Wilson and uh, Sam Maximilian fit, you're probably going to score goals at the other end. Therefore, if you can stop conceding them, you've got a reasonable chance to stay up and you can, you know, spend a bit of money in January, maybe bring in a couple of cent halves, perhaps a keeper. Yeah, you know, certainly something to, re- to give you a bit of a boost somewhere yeah, and do enough to keep up. And then it's get the team up the table, get them challenging for European place. And then, of course, it's to turn it into this European super club, which is a long-term ambition. Now, we're probably looking at two to three managers to go for that process, which is why, funnily enough, Benitez 
it's probably one of the few people who are equipped to do all of those different parts because of his experience in various clubs. Although, it, you know, bear in mind, he did go, Newcastle did go down under him as well. Admittedly, they came straight back. And he's a great politician, but of course, the family live on Merseyside. So I can see why he decided to stay for the time being. It is a difficult job for him. And Eddie's record is a bit mixed in terms of in the transfer market. Though, I think just because Jordan Ibe was obviously a massive failure and he hasn't never had massive amount of money to spend. I mean, yeah, well, I look at his record. I mean, Burnley, he's, when he, that brief spell he had at Burnley, he signed Danny Ings, Kieran Trippett and Ben Mee. Three pretty good players who are still there, as well as people like Charlie Austin and Sam Vokes, who did well for the club. So, yeah, he can spot talent. He signed Callum Wilson, of course. Matt Ritchie, Ron Fraser's one, you know, so he will know some of those players at Newcastle. I think Fraser left under a bit of a cloud. I was going to um, say that. He's going to have to sort that situation <laughs> out between him and uh, Ryan well, Fraser. Well, in- indeed. But, I mean, I guess, uh, you know, football people are pragmatists, if nothing else. If he can do a job for him, you know, it'll be fine. So we'll see. Uh, it's a difficult job, but whoever comes in, and I must be racking your brains, you can't think of too many people who are currently available who would be obvious contenders for that job which is one of the reasons why we ended up ready and the other thing is of course um, how's been at work for now for a while yeah, at some point he has to go back in I always end up being like Alan Kirby forever turning down jobs and the phone stops ringing mm, mm. and I suppose the other thing is it's it's a bit naive isn't it Amory, to just say okay well we'll hang on till January then we'll get a load of players in well it doesn't work like that does it because the best players, or certainly players that are capable of improving Newcastle, probably want, don't want to move in mid-season, do they? No, they won't. And I think the way that Glenn described it was that those stages that they need to go through to get to the point where they want to be. And Glenn is right. Having somebody of Rafa Benitez's stature and experience would have covered all those five or six stages that Newcastle want to get to. So I think this is the start of a, of a very long journey and... Again, it's going to be managing those expectations about what January is going to bring. If it is a case of bringing one new centre-half or a new goalkeeper, then that's the first positive step. They're not going to overhaul the team in January. I kept hearing on the radio when the Saudis came in that all of a sudden they're going to buy all these players in January. We know how tricky the January window is and how inflated some of the prices go up in January when you know teams need to make a change they'll overspend on a player because they want to see a change within their team. Now, we've seen January signings work. Bruno Fernandes, for example, and Manchester United has been an absolute revelation for them. But that's a rarity and that's in the minority as well. So, And also, we have to bear in mind, we're still feeling the, well, the football season anyway and the transfer market is still for the effects of the pandemic as well. So that's going to be another factor in terms of prices and availability and so on and so forth. So... The club are just going to have to manage the expectations. And, and Glenn is absolutely right. The priority right now is to stay up in the Premier League. And, I want, and I'm going to keep my fingers crossed for Newcastle because I'd like them to stay in the Premier League. I like them as a club and I like them as a team. But don't expect big things in January because I'm not sure that the players that they want are going to be available. Nor may they want to come until the end of the season, depending on the managerial situation and where the club is at. The other problem they're going to have, they're going to have a squad of about 50 players in a couple of years because they're going to be ending up signing people for quite a lot of money to get them to the club as they go through these various stages. And then those players are going to be really hard to shift as they as they upgrade. That's going to be one of the issues they're going to have. They're going to end up this massive squad trying to get people out on loan and so on, which is a problem that clubs who transform themselves quickly do have. I suppose, lest we forget, when Manchester City started off under new ownership, that took time to shake down, didn't it, Glenn? It did, it did. And, you know, there was... Um, I remember the, the, the caca bottling it uh, story with Gary Kirk. I mean, all sorts of, there will be, in the early stages, there will be quite a lot of uh, meat for the media and other fans of other clubs to get into as the management find their way around. I see um, Seb Stafford Bloor, who's often on this podcast, making the point that at the moment, the club's in one of the situation whereby there's lots of people running it who all think they're important and want to prove how important they are by leaking stuff to the media. And that's a situation that happened at City in the early stages. And gradually, gradually they will get a proper management structure in place and they will get a bit of discipline and you know, they won't be leaking managerial appointments before they're about to happen and those sort of things. And they will get a bit of a shape to it and it comes together. But it will be, you know, you've got some very, you've got some uh, people who may be good in business 
but have no real experience in football at the top. And uh, football is an industry more than more than most where there are an awful lot of chances who will smell blood in the water and will smell the chance to make a quick buck. Yeah, football, I'm afraid. David Moyes, Anne-Marie, had his thousandth game as manager in that 2-2 draw in Genk for West Ham on Thursday night. When you look at him, he's had his ups and downs. What do you think have been the keys to him revitalising his career at West Ham? I think getting rid rid of that soft underbelly that was associated with West Ham, and I think he's up their technical ability as well. And that partnership between Declan Rice and, and Thomas Socek has been really key. And also the transformation of Mikel Antonio alongside Jared Bowen, and also Saeed Rama as well, scoring goals. You've got Declan Rice scoring goals now. He's had that time, I think, David Moyes, to develop an identity with West Ham and a style of play. And you've got to give him some credit for the, the recruitment has been absolutely spot on. I mentioned about Jared Bowen. I like watching Jared Bowen. I think he's a fantastic player. And I've loved the fact that he's come from the Championship He's come into the Premier League. He's tenacious. He runs into the channels as well. Getting Kurt Zuma from Chelsea to play for West Ham is, you know, that's huge. Somebody like Zuma's level to come, you know, if he believes in the project of West Ham, that's a name to have in your team. And he's been solid for West Ham. So, you know, this second stint that David Moyes has had has been absolutely remarkable. And congratulations to him on reaching your thousandth game because it's not easy. Not all managers or coaches get to that that point within their career. But, you know, you've got to give David Moyes a big pat on the back because under Manuel Pellegrini, it wasn't working. It was a fractured dressing room. But again, he's had the time. We always talk about time within the game. He's had the time to rejig, get the jigsaw pieces into play and now it's you know now you're seeing the the fruitions of all the team and his hard work he's only 602 games behind neil warnock (laughs) (laughs) brilliant yeah no that is something else isn't it yeah Uh, i suppose he does also prove there's life beyond man united doesn't he um glenn he does indeed yes well particularly at the moment i mean they're getting through quite a managers of their own aren't they quite a few players have proved that over the years as well so i mean I, i do wonder how do you wonder how, how beneficial it was that he had that first spell at West Ham and then obviously they, they, they wanted a more glamorous name they brought in um, Pellegrini. But that would have given the opportunity to have a good look at the club, you know, work out how it works on the inside. You know, he would have known the score. So when he went back in, he went, he would have gone back in with a plan and also with the um, added sort of benefit of the fact the club had turned back to him. So that obviously would give him a lot of uh, breathing space in the early stages. So interesting. Yeah, those owners are those owners are difficult to deal with, aren't they? Yes, but you know, so therefore he but he had a good chance to see about managing upwards and, and assessing the squad. So he was able to go in. He didn't go in blind like most new managers do. Yeah, Liverpool are at West Ham on Sunday. Uh, they arrive Amory with a record of twenty five games unbeaten in all competitions. Yeah, you know, they've basically cleaned up in in Europe. You know that so called group of death. They're already qualified from that. Just the, the the bits and bobs of the team, I suppose. That centre of the defence, do you think Virgil van Dijk and Joel Matip are still the best central defensive partnership, even though Canati, when he's been in, is impressive? I do believe that partnership is central for Liverpool. It's just a case of Matip keeping injury free. Then that's the question mark over him. Canate's been brilliant. He's really established himself, but I think he's got a long way to go before he can even make a dent in that partnership between Virgil van Dijk and Matip, because I think the slight problem with Canate is, is that he, he can defend well, of course, but he does get caught out at times. And that's not something that Liverpool want. It's not what they're known for. They're really solid at the back. So I think at the moment, as long as Joel Matip fingers crossed, can keep injury-free, I think that will be Jurgen Klopp's first choice. It'd be interesting if Joe Gomez can get back to finish because I think he was a very good combination. The Championship year, Gomez played more games with Van Dijk than anybody, twice twice as many as anyone else did. Canata's also got a bit of a checkered history injury-wise, only once played more than 21 games a season. I know he's quite young still, but um, yeah, so if ideally, I suppose you look at a situation whereby as long as they've got two or three of those guys fit at any one time, they've got a reasonable shout for a good centre-half pairing. It is a case of, oh, one or two injury problems there. But it would be nice to see Gomez back. I know he's just done a muscle injury, isn't he? 
get him back and fully fit and playing because he's very good on the ball as well. And you know, he was uh, you know heavily established with England before his injury side. Mm. I suppose when you look at it, there is breathing room now, isn't there, in the Champions League following qualifications? I suppose the financial equation is well, if they still go out and win the the two remaining games in the group, they pick up another, I think it's five million pounds. What about that strength in depth, Anne-Marie? Oxlade-Chamberlain did okay earlier in the week. Costas Simicas seems to be a, a bit of a threat to, to Andy Robertson going forward. Have they got enough depth, do you think? That's a great question. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. And hey, I'll happily hold my hands up at the end of the season and happily be proved wrong, but I, I'm not convinced at the moment. I don't think they have the depth of the midfield like they do, like other teams have in, in the Premier League because they, sometimes they're not disciplined they don't keep tight they don't they fail to be compact sometimes however you know Oxley Chambo the Ox he was great against Atletico Madrid with his passing his dribbling he was creating opportunities as well along alongside Fabino who I think is key for them in the midfield and especially now you've got the African Cup of Nations coming up you know for sure that Salah Mane and Keita will be playing in that because obviously they want to represent their country. So there's more chances now for Oxley chamberlain to get into the team, to get some more game time. As for Simicas, that's a good question, actually. I think with that one, I think it's really key that, you know, within those elite teams, if you like, as we've seen with Man City, that they have two players per position. And I think you see that now with Liverpool on that left back side with Andrew Robinson, is that what we're calling him now or still Andy Robinson? I'm going to go with Andrew because I've heard it a few times now with Andrew Robertson, just in case, and Simicast. But I think, you know, six starts for Simicast for Liverpool so far, six clean sheets, all good competition, which is what you want. It's healthy within the team, you know, players competing against each other. Personally, I think Robertson has looked a little bit tired since the Euros. He was the, you know, Scotland captain. There was a lot of energy used within the, the European competition as well. So you wouldn't, I wouldn't blame him if he's feeling a little bit tired from that. But it must be reassuring for Liverpool fans to know that Jurgen Klopp can rotate on the left-back side and not just relying on one key player. Yeah, I think Benjamin White is my favourite one at the moment. (laughs) Manchester Derby, Glenn, simple question. Uh, It's quite a familiar one. Will Ole Gunnar Solskjaer be able to survive another humiliation at Old Trafford? Well, you'd have to assume he will, given what he's already survived. I mean, I suspect a lot of Man United fans will feel being hammered at home by Liverpool is worse than being hammered at home by Manchester City, to be honest, given the historical... Edge between the two clubs. Yeah, you have to assume he will, particularly now Conte won an obvious success he's now off the market. <laughs> so I think the assumption is the expectations are so low going into this game that any kind of result that doesn't end up, you know, we're like three, four, five nil down is going to be seen as a reasonable success for him, which is helpful. More dangerous, perhaps, is that they then go to Watford and go to Villarreal. So if you have, if you, as you, as you mentioned that they have a bad result, then seems to recover with a good result. Normally, Ronaldo score in the last minute. So you've got a situation whereby it's, it's a run of bad results might be more of a problem, and particularly if it starts looking like they won't qualify for the Champions League because that's obviously where the money is. Yeah, and let's be honest, the owners are more interested in money than trophies. And then but November does look tricky. I mean, it starts with Man City, ends with Chelsea, and you've got those two tricky away games at Watford and Villarreal in the middle. At some point, you'd have to assume... The, the people who run the club will think we need to get a top-class proven manager in. But that point doesn't appear to be any time soon. Because I suppose at the moment, Amory is being kept in the job by unpredictable and therefore unreliable flushes of individual brilliance, you know, Ronaldo. Actually, when we're talking about Ronaldo, what do you think of that comparison with Michael Jordan the other day? Oh, <laughs> I can I can see it. I, I can I understand why that comparison's been made. Oh dear! Just, I thought it was over the top. Yeah, personally, but anyway. yeah. I'm just I'm I'm just not. I'm so over this whole thing with Ronaldo and Manchester United. I've got to be honest, Mike and Glenn. I'm just I'm over it now, really. And I think you know, of course, he's going to score goals for Manchester United. Of course, he's going to get the team out of trouble as he did this week in the in the Champions League. And he is somebody who likes to score against City, by the way. I think he's got four or five goals, I think, when he's played against them. So, you know, just, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm really over it. 
I am. <laughs> I think I'm alone in that thinking, maybe, but I am. Yeah. They're, they're good goals, though. I mean, it's not like he's just, you know, putting talent. A lot of the goals he's scoring to get them out of trouble are really good goals. I mean, he's a brilliant finisher. There's no doubt about that. I know there's questions about the whole balance of the side, but as a finisher, he's superb. What about the other end, though? Harry Maguire. Are his struggles going to be exacerbated by the injury to Varane? Because if you look at the stats, since he's returned, let's face it, he's returned unfit or certainly semi-fit, United have conceded 13 goals in five games. Yes, the question is whether they've conceded more or less goals if he's not been playing, given the alternatives. Yeah, I mean, any, any team would miss having a player like Varane out. I mean, I suspect Varane, a fully fit Maguire, is, is a very good central defensive combination. But a not fully fit, you know, at this level... If you're struggling just a little bit for fitness, yeah, particularly in a position like that where you get exposed by pace and movement, you have a problem. It's always going to be at the back of your mind as well. Suddenly you're losing you know, a top-class player alongside you. It is going to be a problem. It's not as if they're particularly brilliantly protected by the players around them either. Yeah, so there's all sorts of structural issues about the way United are playing. And um, from a defensive point of view, yeah, they are... You can certainly see... I mean, City obviously present a very, very different challenge to Liverpool in the way they play. They haven't got those attacking runners stretching you and playing through you in quite the same way. They they tend to go round you and um, haven't got like a Mane type but, and a Salah type, but they clearly will, will test them and, and, and pull that defence apart without, you know, Varane alongside him. So it's going to be interesting to see how that works out. Mm. It was interesting you know, to learn from uh, Gareth Southgate on Thursday that Mason Greenwood had opted out of England selection until next year. Southgate also dropped Jaden Sancho and Marie. I know it's early, but do you think he's regretting the move already? Well, you must be wondering what on earth is going on. And I think it's a fair question to ask because two years this saga went on for in the talk in the papers and online about Jaden Sancho is going to come to Manchester United. They were chasing him and chasing him and chasing him. They get their man and he's barely played over the last few weeks or so. And now he's not in the England squad. So when I heard Gareth Southgate talking in the press conference about that he'd spoken to Jaden Sancho and Jesse Lingard about the reasons why they weren't in the squad, and I'm paraphrasing, he said that they understood I was wondering, really, maybe, really, would they really understand the reasons why? Because from Sancho's point of view, he's seen as the the next best thing. I think he's a creative player, creates all kinds of problems when he's on the pitch. And we're not seeing that right now at Manchester United. So I wouldn't think for a second, if he's not feeling down about it, I'd, I'd totally understand that. And I'd empathise with that because he cannot, he's not somebody of somebody of his quality to deserve to be sitting on the bench. And Ole Gunnar Solskjaer needs to work out how to integrate him more into the team because he wants to play for his country. He's a stunning talent. And I, I wouldn't blame him at all if he's feeling a little bit frustrated with the whole situation. Mm. City's mood, Glenn. Yeah, Pep's been a bit spiky, which is presumably quite a good sign. What I'm wondering about is the form of, of Kevin De Bruyne. There are uncharacteristic questions beginning to be posed about him, you know, longer-term impact of, of injury, that sort of thing. Would you have any concerns about him? Not in the long term. I mean, um, he has had quite a few injuries over the last two or three years. I think there's very much a sense that opposition sides tend to target him. It's, it's a bit more sophisticated these days than it used to be in terms of when you're targeting the, the outstanding player. You could argue the Champions League final wasn't particularly sophisticated. It might have been an accident, I suppose. But uh, no, I mean, that, that sort of quality allied with proper fitness would always be be fine. I mean, the question would obviously be you know, how much of the injuries sort of playing on his fitness. But I mean, yeah, he's still relatively young and... Um, yeah, it's been quite difficult. Obviously, yeah, I mean, as with Lukaku, they've had successive summers of disappointment with Belgium when they put a lot into it, which I think has played a fa- been a factor. I mean, the, the sense in terms of their country that they're running out of time to really produce what that you know, team should be producing. I guess that will have an impact, a mental impact as well as a physical impact. Essentially, there's a piece with one of the Brent, you know, the Brentford players today in the Times, uh, Janssen saying just how. What's surprising about playing the Premier League is, is how f- mentally tiring it is. 
rather than just physically tired. He said, I knew he was physically tired, but yeah, he's coming off every game mentally exhausted. Yeah, so when you're doing this, you're also yeah, playing a high, very high level for your country as well. Yeah, and with the expectation that someone like De Bruyne has got on them, yeah, that's bound to take a toll over a period of time. I mean, I think he just needs a little bit of um, sort of time, really, and maybe um, mental, physical time. Remember when... Um, Fergie sent Michael off for a holiday. Yeah, that, those sort of things. Sometimes you just need to give people a bit of a break. And in their modern calendar, it's very, very hard to find a break. In, in, in many respects, injuries are the sort of the enforced breaks you get where you can recharge a little bit. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You know, we've got another international break coming up. You know, it might be time to. Um... Let's say over exaggerate a knock or something like that. Well, they're, they're qualified as well, aren't they, Mike? So, I mean, they, they could actually yeah. give those players a rest because they, they are pretty much qualified. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Chelsea, you talked uh, or alluded earlier on, Amory, to the, the power opportunity when we were talking about Jade Sancho. Trevor Chaloba signed a new contract at Chelsea until 2026. That just shows the talents there within that group, doesn't it? And if you, all you've got to do is give it a chance. Yes. And um, I really still believe, and I, I think we've talked about this on the podcast before, that Chelsea are the team to beat this season. You know, they're attacking on all fronts. They've got some big games coming up in the next few weeks or so. There's an energy and a vibrancy about Chelsea as well. And Trevor, Trevor's certainly a part of that. Reese James, who thought he could score goals? My goodness. You know, that's been a revelation as well. And Edouard Mendy, you know, he's a Big player for them has kept what over thirty clean sheets for that team. There's just they're just on another level, I think. Chelsea. Why wouldn't you want to be a part of that? I applaud Trevor signing that contract because I think he he's a talented player and I think Chelsea is a great place for him to develop with a top class manager and some world class players around him as well. It's also another tribute to the quality of their youth system. There, they've, they've really got something going at Chelsea. I mean, Neil Barth, uh, Judy Moyes when he was there and. The amount of players that have been coming through in the recent years at Chelsea, and they are, I know people regard Chelsea as a team that spends lots of money, and they do, but they do give quite a lot of these young players an opportunity. I mean, you obviously Mason Mount, Ruben Loftus Cheek coming back. I mean, Reese James, there are, you know, there are a tremendous amount of really high quality players coming through their youth system. Mm. Staying on that point, Glenn, you know, Arsenal, you know, home to Watford on Sunday. Are they feeling the benefit of, of a lack of European involvement? Because that allows a much more measured transition to a younger team. Absolutely. It allows time on the training ground. You haven't got the... A, you get like, what, six extra midweeks, eight extra midweeks or more, depending on how far you progress. So you've got those weeks when you've got, you know, you can actually get on the training ground and work with your players instead of flying somewhere. I know they're all flying luxury these days and so on, but... Yeah, those away trips in particular, I mean, uh, it's time away, it's physically demanding, it's mentally demanding. So whilst every club wants to be in Europe, obviously, you would have to look at it and are Arsenal better off than Spurs because Arsenal are not in the Europa, the Conference League and Spurs are, you'd probably say yes in terms of yeah, looking through the, the course of the season. It does give you time. Those players who everyone's saying what a terrible transfer window they've had were well, now looking like they're rather good signings. And again, as with Chelsea, yeah, Saka, Smith Rowe, fans like seeing their own players coming through. Yeah, and they add a buzz to the side. Saka in particular, every time he, things happen around him, he, has, he gives the team lots and lots of energy. They begin to look like a side. Yeah, it looks like oh, certainly the the, the, the noise is that Kieran Tierney might be available for, for the Watford game. Even if he's not, Amory, I was really impressed with Nuno Tavares at left back. They, you know, fullback was an issue for, for Arsenal, but with Tommy Asu on the other side, they seem really solid there now. They do. And I like, the, again, using Liverpool as the example, having that competition at left back because Kieran Tierney, God love him, and I do as a Arsenal fan, that he, you know, injuries have come and gone for him. So you need that back up on the, on the left-hand side. And you have that now in Tavares, that is for sure. With Tommy Asu on the right, though, like him a lot. I think he's come in. He's hit the ground running, really. He looks like he's been playing for Arsenal for years. My worry, though, in touch with this doesn't happen. If he ends up being injured, who is going to replace him? Uh, you know, Maitland-Niles is already made clear, even though he is a right-back, he prefers playing in midfield. Callum Chambers, OK-ish, I think. He can do a job, but could he be at that level that Tommy Asu's at? Is there still a question mark about that? So, things are rosy right now. 
It's great now that you can see other players are now stepping up into roles when key players are injured, like, for example, Kieran Tierney. Obviously, with Xhaka being out as well, Lukonga has been fantastic in that midfield with Partey. But there's still a couple of places within that team, I think, that are still a little bit vulnerable if one key player is injured. And they're also going to be quite exposed to the African Nations Cup when that comes along. They've got quite a few players who will be going in central midfield when um, Mate and Niles may get a decent chance of a run at central midfield. Mm. Do you think that will have a almost a it will help to shape the season, Glenn? The African Nations Cup. Yeah. Um, some some clubs will be certainly more hit by it than others, and there will certainly be one or two managers sitting at home thinking, "God, I hope we get hope they get knocked out pretty quickly so they can come back." <laughs> and traditionally, the teams that go on a long time, their players find it quite difficult when they first get back. So, it will certainly make an impact. And so, some clubs will be. I mean, one or two teams haven't got anybody going, and there's teams like Liverpool and Arsenal got quite a few key players going. But this is what happens, you know. You sign overseas players, yeah. Particularly, you know, the African Nations Cup has generally been around sort of January time, but yeah, you know, for most 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 of the time, you have to bet that that goes to the territory. You have to bear that in mind. Some clubs will be better covered than others, and as we mentioned, it, it does give other players opportunity. Mm. Yeah, talking of going with the, the 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 territory, you know, the international break brings with it problems of you know players travelling long distances. But for managers, it's a time when probably they they pray that the phone doesn't ring. It's a traditional time for change, isn't it, in management? I suppose at the moment, as we go into the into the break, Dean Smith at Villa is under most scrutiny. Is that entirely fair, Amory? Yeah, it's just not clicking right now for Villa. And I was listening to the game at the weekend. Um, when I was in the car, I was driving back from Manchester and the commentator and the co-coms kept going on about the fact that they're missing Jack Grealish, they're missing Jack Grealish. Yes, that's, that's true, but it's irrelevant now. He's a Manchester City player, so let's move on from that. Let's focus on what they have right now. Buendia is not firing at all at the moment. Don't know what's going on there. Leon Bailey's just coming back from industry, from injury. He lit up the Premier League when he came on for his first game. And as I'm half Jamaican anyway, it was great to see a player from Jamaica lighting up the Premier League, like Mikel Antonio, of course. But he's coming back from injury. You just see that there's a lot of eyes on Villa right now. And that whole thing about Tyrone Mings as well being dropped from that West Ham game, I didn't expect that at all. And I don't think Tyrone Mings has been 100% on it over the last few weeks. And that was a big call for Dean Smith to make. And if it wasn't for Konza being sent off, I don't think you would have seen Tyro Mings in that game. I think as we head into Christmas, that's when owners start getting a little bit worried. But I don't think, I don't know, Mike, I'm not entirely sure that those manage, those owners towards the middle and the bottom end of the table are necessarily worried. I can't see anything happening with Leeds. You know, Marcelo Bielsa is a god there. Even though they're 17th in the table, they're missing key players. Can't see that one changing. Watford have recently changed their manager as well. I think Southampton and, and Ralph Hasselhutel are finally starting to work their way back up at the table. Norwich, well, what can you say about that as well? And the Newcastle, you know, likely to have a new manager on the touchline at the weekend. So I think the only one really, as you rightly say, is um, Aston Villa. I think it'd be very, very harsh to, to, to say. When you look at the mess that Villa were in when he took over the job, I mean treading water in the championship where they are now he's transformed the club and that, that was a really difficult ship to turn around because they, they'd had a bad time for quite quite a lot of seasons you look at his record of Brentford and Walsall there were quite long periods when they didn't do that well actually and both the clubs stuck with him and were rewarded you know when he turned it around they, they went on long successful runs do you hope that the ball would have keep their nerve um, there are some tricky fixtures coming up tricky ones Southampton, Brighton, Palace which are sort of winnable but you know, good opposition. Then Man City, Leicester and Liverpool, which is obviously a, a very tough three games to come. But you would have thought that, I mean, people say, oh, well, no, because John Terry's not there. Well, John Terry wasn't there when he started either, when he took him up. So, yeah, well, when he took, first turned the club around. So I don't think it's down to that. Yeah, it would be very harsh. I think they've had a difficult transition moving on from Greenwich and Buendia turns out ripping up defences in the Championship isn't quite the same as ripping up in the Premier League. But I, I would have thought they would turn it around. Yeah, well, I hope they do stay with him. Just want to finish on this note, please, and, and, and bear with me, because I want to end by telling a story and hopefully making a point. 
A couple of years ago, I met a Holocaust survivor named uh, Ziggy Shipper. He was in his early 90s and made a lasting impression on me with his humility and his quiet strength. He showed me the shirt given to him by England players when he guided them around Auschwitz, where he was held captive. He also showed me what he called his wall of miracles. It contained the photos of his children, grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Why the wall of miracles? Well, as he explained, his family would not have existed had he been liquidated at the camp. I thought of Ziggy when I saw that disgusting video of West Ham supporters bullying and abusing a Jewish man on a flight to Belgium ahead of the Europa League match against Genk. The club are rightly and understandably appalled and I hope West Ham track down the culprits and ban them as promised because Ziggy knows where such attitudes can lead. As usual, I just want to give my thanks to Glenn and Anne-Marie for their insight. And thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.